Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today's text is called Killing the Angel in the House, and it's a collection of lectures and essays written by Virginia Woolf between 1905 and 1941. That phrase, killing the angel in the house, and what it represents has been really, really important in my life. So I cannot wait to share it and discuss it with my reading partner today, Rochelle Burnside. Hi, Rochelle. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for being here, Rochelle. Before we get started, uh, we need a review of who Virginia Woolf was. We talked about her in detail during our most recent episode, which was A Room of One's Own. But just as a review, I'd like to talk about her just a little bit and with a slightly different emphasis based on the text that we'll be reading. So Rochelle, could you tell us some details about Virginia Woolf? Sure. So Virginia Woolf was born Adeline Virginia Stephen in Kensington, London, England in 1882. Her father, Leslie Stephen, was a respected man of letters. And as a young girl, Woolf was introduced to many literary figures, including Henry James and others. Woolf also made great use of the family home's vast library, working her way through much of the English literary canon as a teenager. Her summers were spent in St. Ives, Cornwall, which would later form the setting for her famous novel, To the Lighthouse. Um, Virginia's mother died when she was just 13, which led Virginia to have a mental breakdown. Virginia wrote in her journals about being sexually abused by an older stepbrother throughout her entire childhood, and she struggled with severe bouts of depression her entire life. However, she did experience happy times as well, particularly as part of a robust and dynamic literary group called the Bloomsbury Group. She owned a publishing company. She was married to a man named Leonard Wolf, um, who loved her and whom she loved, although she famously did have an affair with a woman named C- Vita Sackville West, who accompanied Virginia to the lecture Professions for Women, which we're going to be discussing today. Uh, she produced novels and essays and lectures that changed English literature forever and expanded society's understanding of gender. I particularly appreciate Virginia Woolf, because she lets us inside her own mind, as we'll see when we read and discuss this collection of essays. Thanks, Rochelle. Um, One last part that it's important to set up before we start talking about the essays is the concept of the angel in the house. This was the end of the Victorian era when Virginia Woolf was writing. And as we've talked about in past episodes, one pervasive feature of the Victorian era was the ideology of separate spheres, which held that men and women had complementary roles in society. The man's role was to work in the professional world, to lead in government, and really in all institutions, religious and secular. And then the woman's role was to be the man's supporter and helper, to nurture children at home and to be the the gentle, quiet, demure keeper of the hearth. This is also referred to as the Victorian cult of domesticity, where women were placed on a pedestal and really almost worshipped as self-sacrificing angels. But they were very strictly controlled and prohibited by law by men who made laws from leaving the domestic realm. So this idealization of the selfless, self-abnegating woman was captured and then perpetuated by a poem written in 1854 in England by a man named Coventry Patmore. He considered his wife, Emily, 
the ideal woman. And he wrote this long, really sentimental poem about all of her virtues. It's not a great poem. Um, We're just going to read two short excerpts. It's a very long poem, but this will give us an idea of what kind of behaviors this poem is extolling and idolizing. So could you read just those two short excerpts, Rochelle? Sure. The best half of creation's best, its heart to feel, its eye to see, the crown and complex of the rest, its aim and its epitome. Nay, might I utter my conceit, t'were after all a vulgar song, for she's so simply, subtly sweet, my deepest rapture does her wrong. Yet it, yet is it now my chosen task to sing her worth as maid and wife, nor happier post than this I ask, to live her laureate all my life. Man must be pleased. But him to please is woman's pleasure. Down the gulf of his condoled necessities, she casts her best, she flings herself. How often flings for naught, and yokes her heart to an icicle or whim, whose each impatient word provokes another, not from her, but him. While she, too gentle even to force his penitence by kind replies, waits by, expecting his remorse, with pardon in her pitying eyes. So the narrator of the poem has written what on the surface seems to be uh, an ode praising women as the best half of creation. And the narrator ascribes what we've come to regard, no doubt influenced by this poem, as stereotypically feminine characteristics to women, emotionality, simplicity, sweetness, selflessness, and of course, a desire to please men above all else. Um, the image of the women in the poem is patronizing, first of all. If you characterize women as childlike, innocent, and naive, of course, you're laying the groundwork to justify policing their lives with the excuse of protecting them. And of course, the narrator's assertion that it's the male prerogative to get what they want uh, when he says man must be pleased Right. And the justification of that selfishness by assuming that fulfilling male desire is women's greatest pleasure is a bit maddening. Yeah. But what I found most disturbing, I think, about the poem was the relationship dynamic between men and women that's described in which women basically kind of annihilate their selfhood in serving their husbands. And the husbands are not only unaware of the sacrifice, but they're often ungrateful or even abusive. The narrator's suggestion that women who silently endure this treatment without reproaching men for this bad behavior uh, and the idea that this is praiseworthy, um, that women are some type of gender martyrs, that's not just a sexist idea. That's an actually toxic idea. It is. I agree. And that I agree that I think the most disturbing part for me, too, is that he's praising it like um, yes. it, it does. It really does praise and hold up as ideal an, an emotionally abusive relationship, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then encourages her to be passive aggressive and guilt him into behaving well. Right, it right, right. really such a toxic gender it's dynamic. Terrible. It's yeah, awful. You're, you're right. Yeah, that she just kind of expects him, his remorse with pardon in her pitying eyes that she pities him that he's being so unkind. Yeah, it's pretty awful. Yeah. And so this was... Um, this poem did was part of, you know, the canon, the literary canon. And, and like I said, it was very, very well known by people mm -hmm. um, and a representation of this underlying ideology of the separate spheres and, and 
idolizing that kind of, like you said, um, completely self-sacrificing, um, self-annihilating angel. That was what the angel in the house was. So knowing all of that, with all of that background, we're going to dive into the text. So as I mentioned in the introduction, this book is actually a collection of lectures and essays. It's not a novel like some of her other works or like A Room of One's Own is more like kind of a stream of consciousness essay. This is a collection of different lectures. There are seven of them, but Rochelle and I are just going to talk about two. We'll spend most of the time talking about the lecture called Professions for Women, which includes the metaphor of killing the angel in the house for which the whole um, compilation is named. And then briefly after that, um, we'll just say a couple of things about another um, essay called The Intellectual Status of Women. Let's get started. We'll start with the, the lecture Professions for Women. And I'm going to start with um, an excerpt. I'm just going to read her very first two paragraphs of the lecture. She says, quote, when your secretary invited me to come here, she told me that your society is concerned with the employment of women, and she suggested that I might tell you something about my own professional experiences. It is true, I am a woman. It is true, I am employed. But what professional experiences have I had? It is difficult to say. My profession is literature, and that road was cut many years ago. Many famous women and many more unknown and forgotten have been before me, making the path smooth and regulating my steps. Thus, when I came to write, there were very few material obstacles in my way. Writing was a reputable and harmless occupation. The family peace was not broken by the scratching of a pen. No demand was made upon the family purse. For ten and sixpence, one can buy paper enough to write all the plays of Shakespeare, if one has a mind that way. The cheapness of writing paper is, of course, the reason why women have succeeded as writers before they have succeeded in the other professions, end quote. So this reminded me of our previous episode of A Room of One's Own, where Wolf talks extensively about people's willingness to invest in men's education and careers, but not in women's. She then starts into the meat of the essay, which is to talk about the process of writing and a certain problem that keeps getting in her way. So Rochelle, do you want to take that next part? Sure. So Wolf writes, but wait a moment. Articles have to be about something. Mine, I seem to remember, was about a novel by a famous man. And while I was writing this review, I discovered that if I were going to review books, I should need to do battle with a certain phantom. And the phantom was a woman. And when I came to know her better, I called her after the heroine of a famous poem, The Angel in the House. It was she who used to come between me and my paper when I was writing reviews. It was she who bothered me and wasted my time and so tormented me that at last I killed her. You who come of a younger and happier generation may not have heard of her. You may not know what I mean by the angel in the house. I will describe her as shortly as I can. She was intensely sympathetic. She was immensely charming. She was utterly unselfish. She excelled in the difficult arts of family life. She sacri sacrificed herself daily. If there was chicken, she took the leg. If there was a draft, she sat in it. In short, she was so constituted that she never had a mind or a wish of her own, but preferred to sympathize always with the minds and wishes of others. Above all, I need not say it, she was pure. 
Her purity was supposed to be her chief beauty, her blushes, her great grace. In those days, the last of Queen Victoria, every house had its angel. And when I came to write, I encountered her with the very first words. The shadow of her wings fell on my page. I heard the rustling of her skirts in the room. Directly, that is to say, I took my pen in my hand to review that novel by a famous man. She slipped behind me and whispered, My dear, you are a young woman. You are writing about a book that has been written by a man. Be sympathetic, be tender, flatter, deceive. Use all the arts and wiles of our sex. Never let anybody guess that you have a mind of your own. Above all, be pure. And she made as if to guide my pen. I now record the one act for which I take some credit to myself. I turned upon her and caught her by the throat. I did my best to kill her. My excuse, if I were to be had up in a court of law, would be that I acted in self-defense. Had I not killed her, she would have killed me. She would have plucked the heart out of my writing. For as I found directly, I put pen to paper, you cannot review even a novel without having a mind of your own, without expressing what you think to be the truth about human relations, morality, sex, and all these questions, according to the angel of the house, cannot be dealt with freely and openly by women. They must charm, they must conciliate, they must, to put it bluntly, tell lies if they are to succeed. Thus, whenever I felt the shadow of her wing or the radiance of her halo upon my page, I took up the ink pot and flung it at her. She died hard. Her fictitious nature was of great assistance to her. It is far harder to kill a phantom than a reality. She was always creeping back when I thought I had dispatched her. Though I flatter myself that I killed her in the end, the struggle was severe. It took much time that had better been spent upon learning Greek grammar or in roaming the world in search of adventures. But it was a real experience. It was an experience that was bound to befall all women writers at that time. Killing the angel in the house was part of the occupation of a woman writer. Thanks, Rochelle. There's so much to talk about there. I think it's so interesting, and I, especially when I read this the first time, I really wrestled a lot with that the that she is doing battle with a woman. And I thought, you know, I've just been really wrestling with that. And like, is that fair? It's kind of the woman who's victimized by the system. So why is she killing the woman instead of killing the man? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I, I don't know that there's not a space to do the battle with the men, right? Sure. But I think well, for it, sure. Yeah, definitely, right? But I think it comes maybe from an understanding that maybe you can't control the thoughts and be- behavior of other people, but you can control your own. So what good is it to try and gauge, you know, with her father or with Coventry Patmore if she can't get rid of her own internalized misogyny? Yeah, wow, that's such a great point, Rochelle. Okay, let's go on to where Wolf describes the woman writer poised with her pen over the paper, waiting for an idea to come to her. And she thinks of an idea, and it starts to take her somewhere productive, but then her momentum crashes into something hard, some resistance. So Wolf says, quote, the imagination had dashed itself against something hard. The girl was roused from her dream. She was indeed in a state of the most acute and difficult distress, 
To speak without figure, she had thought of something, something about the body, about the passions with which it was unfitting for her as a woman to say. Men, her reason told her, would be shocked. The consciousness of what men will say of a woman who speaks the truth about her passions had roused her from her artist's state of unconsciousness. She could write no more. The trance was over. Her imagination could work no longer. This, I believe, to be a very common experience with women writers. They are impeded by the extreme conventionality of the other sex. For though men sensibly allow themselves great freedom in these respects, I doubt that they realize or can control the extreme severity with which they condemn such freedom in women. And that's the end of the quote. So men acted with sexual freedom and women could not. Men could write about sexuality. Women could not. Yeah, I think the big sticking point for real equality is always going to be sex and sexual expression. Um, I, I think that our society is terrified of women who own their sexuality and aren't embarrassed by it. Um, Wolf comes to a point in her writing where she's blocked because she wants to say something real, something honest about the body and sex, but she's inhibited from doing so, right? Because she knows that men can't handle women being that real and honest about the body and sex. It's too shocking. It's too offensive. So, you know, women's bodies are policed in so many ways, both literally and figuratively. And, you know, this is another type of policing. We're not even allowed to talk about the lived realities of our bodies, without being shamed or judged. We're taught that our bodies are gross. So we remove our hair, we cover up our natural odor, we're shamed over our periods, we're shamed for breastfeeding in public, we're shamed for feeling sexual desire, we're shamed for not feeling sexual desire, right? And we're definitely shamed if we discuss any of it. Yeah. Exactly. Great points. Um, Okay, we have arrived at our last quote from this lecture. Mm. And I'm just going to read it um, it's, it's the last paragraph that Virginia Woolf shares. And so I'm just going to let it stand quote. Those are the questions that I should like, had I time to ask you, even when the path is nominally open, when there is nothing to prevent a woman from being a doctor, a lawyer, a civil servant, there are many phantoms and obstacles, as I believe looming in her way. To discuss and define them is, I think, of great value and importance, for thus only can the labor be shared, the difficulties be solved. But besides this, it is necessary also to discuss the ends and the aims for which we are fighting, for which we are doing battle with these formidable obstacles. Those aims cannot be taken for granted. They must be perpetually questioned and examined. The whole position, as I see it, here in this hall, surrounded by women practicing for the first time in history, I know not how many different professions, is one of extraordinary interest and importance. You have one rooms of your own in the house, hitherto exclusively owned by men. You are able, though not without great labor and effort, to pay the rent. You are earning your 500 pounds a year. But this freedom is only a beginning. The room is your own, but it is still bare. It has to be furnished. It has to be decorated. It has to be shared. How are you going to furnish it? How are you going to decorate it? With whom are you going to share it and upon what terms? These, I think, are questions of the utmost importance and interest. For the first time in history, you are able to ask them. 
for the first time, you are able to decide for yourselves what the answers should be. So let's now turn to the intellectual status of women. Um, But just by way of introduction to what this is, it's not really a lecture or an essay. Um, Virginia Woolf had a friend named Desmond McCarthy, who was part of a literary circle called the Bloomsbury Group, which we, Rochelle mentioned in her biography of Virginia Woolf. Um, Desmond McCarthy had been educated at Cambridge, and he was the editor of the magazine, The New Statesman, where he wrote a weekly editorial under the pen name Affable Hawk. And that's also partly why it felt like a Twitter thread, because that just seemed like a Twitter handle, like like, um, a pen name, I guess, that people would use on social media. Um, So Affable Hawk had written a review of a nonfiction book by Arnold Bennett called Our Women. Um, And it had a chapter in it called Are Men Superior to Women? Which really might just as well have been titled Men Are Superior to Women. So. McCarthy favorably quoted sections from the book in his weekly column called Books in General. And when Virginia Woolf read that column in The New Statesman, um, she wrote in and responded. And so she and Affable Hawk, who was really her friend Desmond McCarthy, had a debate about whether women were intellectually inferior to men. Um, so again, without reading any of the conversation, I just, I think we'll just use this opportunity to say, you know, a takeaway from the conversation. So Rochelle, do you want to go first? Yeah, I had a a kind of two takeaways. First, I just loved the sass that was underlying Virginia, Virginia Woolf, just the tone and like she was over it. Um, (laughs) but I was also struck, you know, a by kind of this ridiculous logic of these reviewers making this argument that, you know, women were intellectually inferior, because I think it's indicative of, of a, a a larger issue that people make when they're making these arguments that one group is just inherently inferior to another. It's like, you know, as a man, I'm going to set up a set of criteria about what constitutes artistic genius. And that criteria is based solely on my personal lived experience as a man. And I'm going to appoint myself and others like me as the sole arbiters of who can be considered an artist And then I'm going to institute uh, social, economic, and educational conditions that make it nearly impossible for anyone who's not like me to create any kind of art because I'm going to deny those other people education or training or freedom or autonomy or even intellectual space in which they could possibly create art. And then when those other people, women or people of color or whoever it is, do manage to create some art, despite these hurdles I've put in their way, I'm going to routinely make it nearly impossible for anyone to actually access that art that's been created because I'm going to refuse to publish it or display it or perform it because I'm going to make the argument that that art is inferior because one, it has been created by a woman or a person of color and therefore it can't be genius right? Because it doesn't fit my standard that I've created. Or two, arguing that no one who has artistic taste, i.e. people like me, is interested in seeing it or reading or listening to it because it is created by a woman or a person of color. And, and that if that art still manages to somehow sneak into the public consciousness, I'm then going to either dismiss its value and worth because it doesn't conform to those definitions I created out of nothing and just decided was the definition of of what art should be, or I'm going to dismiss its success as a fluke, right? A one-off, no matter how great it is. 
and argue that art by women or people of color in general is inferior because more people weren't able to accomplish the same thing, right? Well, where are the rest of them? There's there's only one woman who's done this. So there's only one person of color who's done this. So, you know, mm-hmm. why aren't there more people who've done it? Thus proving that my own art is inherently superior. And then when somebody points out the flaws in my argument, I'm going to pretend that I've done none of those things yeah. to gatekeep and that the playing field has been equal all along and dismiss everybody else's lived experience as having valid, as being invalid. And you're being hysterical Right. And it's it's structural gaslighting. Mm -hmm. And then when somebody argues that we need to make space for other people's experiences, then I'm going to point out the one person that I said was proof that, you know, women and people of color aren't geniuses and said, well, Jane Austen was able to publish a novel. Well, Barack Obama got to be president. So that proves to you that anybody can do it. So I don't need to change the structure. So I got a little heated. (laughs) (laughs) when I read it. Preach, Rochelle. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. What can I, how can I respond to that? It's true. (laughs) Everything you just said is completely true. That is, I will say this, I guess, as my comment, it's a yes and comment because Mm. I do want to end on a hopeful note. And there was one tiny little glimmer of hope I found. (laughs) Mm. I mean, aside from in the conversation, you're right. Virginia Woolf is so entertainingly salty and sassy and she's just such a brilliant thinker. And I appreciated, I appreciated that she did have the conversation because sometimes, sometimes it's appropriate to just walk away and say, I'm not going to talk about this with a certain person who's, not acknowledging the unfairness of the argument and being a bully, but this is her friend and she is engaging. And I learned a lot from the conversation, but um, I just want to share that the one little glimmer of hope that I found on his end was that at the very end, um, Virginia Woolf says the last thing she says, I'm going to read her paragraph and Mm -hmm. then his short little response quote, My difference with Affable Hawk is not that he denies the present intellectual equality of men and women. It is that he, with Mr. Bennett, asserts that the mind of woman is not affected by education and liberty, that it is incapable of the highest achievements, and that it must remain forever in the condition in which it is now. I must repeat that the fact that women have improved, which Affable Hawk now seems to admit, shows that they might still improve, for I cannot see why a limit should be set to their improvement in the 19th century. But it is not education only that is needed. It is that women should have liberty of experience, that they should differ from men without fear and express their differences openly, that all activity of the mind should be so encouraged that there will always be in existence a nucleus of women who think, invent, imagine and create as freely as men do and with as little fear of ridicule and condescension. These conditions, in my view, of great importance are impeded by such statements as those of Affable Hawk and Mr. Bennett. For a man has still much greater facilities than a woman for making his views known and respected. Certainly, I cannot doubt that if such opinions prevail in the future, we shall remain in a condition of half-civilized barbarism. At least that is how I define an eternity of dominion on the one hand and of servility on the other. Mm. Yours, etc., Virginia Woolf. 
So she's saying that women's intellectual capacity does keep improving the more education they are allowed to have, um, that women need to feel free to imagine and create without fear of ridicule and condescension from men. Mm -hmm. And she's saying that men's voices are so much louder than women's in society. And so every time a male author writes that women are inferior, it makes it impossible for women to get any traction to start to believe in themselves and rise above the limitations that men have created. Yeah. So it's actually this exact type of conversation, which is being published in the New Statesman, that conversation itself is holding women back, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, Exactly. And so Affable Hawk, this is the the part that I thought, oh, a ray of light. Um, Affable Hawk replies, just one sentence. And he's been very wordy up until now. Um, <laughs> it's been um, very ro- a very robust conversation on both ends. He just writes one sentence. He says, quote, if the freedom and education of women is impeded by the expression of my views, I shall argue no more. End of quote. So it's hard to know from that short of a response actually what he really meant, but it is possible to read it that he heard her and that he recognized that he was part of the problem and that he was making things harder for women. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that he learned from her and he cared about women enough to stop impeding their progress. And that's how I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it positively in a way that kind of gives me hope and reminds me um, that. The truth is that the vast majority of men that I know personally are really, really good men who do not want to do damage to women. And I feel like if we have men in our lives who are willing to listen and willing to learn, it's important to keep having these conversations, even if they're frustrating or uncomfortable or they take a little while to come around. Um, I think it's an important part of the process. So, Yeah, definitely. Well, that wraps up our discussion. That was awesome. Thank you so much again for being here, Rochelle. Oh gosh, thanks so much for having me. I was so I enjoyed it so much. So did I. 